0: When's the last time you recommended milk? After all, milk is a key component of an overall healthy diet. The protein and calcium in dairy milk are natural sources of bone and muscle-building nutrients. Dairy milk can even help reduce high blood pressure. It's a simple prescription for prevention, rooted in evidence and proven over time. So maybe it's time to rethink milk. Simple, healthy.
1: That's the science of milk. Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash further.
2: I'm Blair Bigham. And I'm Mujola Molly. This is the CMAJ Podcast. Blair, this topic that we're going to dive in today about the crisis that's in emergency medicine is something that we've talked about quite a bit and it's something that you're quite passionate about.
3: Yeah, I think um, we've taken the opportunity based on some recent activity in both CMAJ and the popular press to rush this episode uh, to really address a a worsening problem, although it sounds perennial, this idea that emergency departments are in crisis. And we're going to get into why that is and and how we might actually start to address that in meaningful ways.
2: And um, Catherine Varner, one of the deputy editors of the CMAJ, uh, wrote a very eloquent and articulate uh, editorial just outlining some maybe easy solutions or some areas that we should focus on that often have been left out when we're talking about the crisis at an emergency department.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of evidence out there. There's 20, 30 years of literature about how how hospitals and governments can can address this in in ways that make the burden a little bit lighter. And I guess that's the real the real emergent issue right now is that the burden in the ER on patients and on workers is just through the roof. We've had so many physicians quit and nurses quit at the hospital where I work in the ER. I actually took myself off the schedule um, for the next couple of months because I can't deliver good care when I go to work. I literally go home feeling terrible and lose sleep over the state of what I'm able to accomplish with the resources at my fingertips in the emergency department. It, it, it's just soul crushing right now. And so I'm really glad that that we've decided to to jump into it here. For sure. So we're going to
2: have a great conversation uh, with Catherine Werner and David Petrie.
3: We have an all-star panel to discuss with us the crisis going on in Canada's emergency department. David Petrie is an emergency physician in Halifax and co-chair of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians Task Force on the Future of Emergency Care. And Catherine Varner is a deputy editor at CMAJ, an emergency physician in Toronto, and the author of two summer editorials in CMAJ, the most recent of which was entitled, Without More Acute Care Beds, Hospitals Are on Their Own to Grapple with Emergency Department Crises. Thank you both so much for being here today. Glad to be here. Thanks so much, Blair. So anyone who's walked into an emergency department in the last 10 years probably thinks that this is old news. But there's been quite a bit of media attention just in the last couple of weeks. Some big national stories have been released talking about the crisis in emergency rooms across the country. What what do we actually mean when we're talking about a crisis? What's happening now that wasn't happening a year ago or even a few months ago that has brought this bubbling up to the surface again?
0: I I think what we're hearing from emergency providers across the country is that they're seeing levels of crowding in their emergency department waiting rooms in particular and in their care spaces that they have not experienced before. And at the beginning of the summer, we actually saw emergency physicians uh, in large numbers write open letters to uh, media outlets and um, their politicians about the their inability to provide safe and timely care in canadian emergency departments and i've worked in this field for 10 years i have not been a part of something like this before and i think all of us on the ground in emergency medicine feel like the ability to see patients uh, it's harder than it's ever been before uh, because we just don't have the space or the staff to look after the number of patients that are coming in uh, and seeking emergency care.
4: Yeah, I mean, I would agree. My take on that, as you know, Blair, this problem goes back for decades probably. So it's not like it hasn't been a problem in the past, but I think increasingly uh, the literature would suggest that waiting in the emergency department is not just an inconvenience. It does uh, correlate with uh, morbidity and mortality, and more and more studies are coming out to show that. So I think that is part of it. But post-COVID, things seem to get worse with regards to the number one cause of this, and I think that's boarding of admitted patients in the emergency departments went up, ED length of stays of admitted patients, which were in the sort of 90 percentile 20 to 30 hour range are now in the 40 to 50 hour range. At the same time, there was a significant impact on uh, staff. We started to lose especially emergency nurses who had been uh, at the front line of all of this. And I think the third thing is this sense that given it's been a problem for so long, we're not really seeing change where we need to see change in order to impact and make things better for the patients that we serve. So there's this, yeah, moral injury thing, and it's just hit a tipping point. It really has hit a tipping point.
3: David, you talked about a couple of metrics there that we talk about, sort of ER lingo around people who are boarded in the emergency department and how many hours or or nowadays, how many days it takes for them to leave the emergency department and be admitted to hospital. Catherine, in terms of patients who are admitted, often you or I on shift can't fix that. We can't make those people go up to the ward or get space. Tell our audience just a little bit more about how those admitted patients really bung up the way we're supposed to be functioning.
0: Yeah, so I completely agree with David that the you know, primary problem for why we're seeing crowding in our emergency departments right now is that we are working with near 100% occupancy of even the emergency departments of being fully uh, filled with admitted patients, With which means that when a new patient arrives seeking emergency care, we don't have a bed or the staff to look after them. And so they sit in the waiting room, um, regardless of what their emergency is. And so the challenges we then are seeing And needing to care for patients in these unconventional spaces like the waiting room or a bed that we use temporarily for our EMS personnel, we're now using as and trying to use as a fully functioning bed in the waiting room. And that's really not where we are able to provide adequate care for patients or care that uh, allows for privacy or the type of equipment that we need to care for patients, particularly if they're really sick.
4: And Claire, can I just ahead. add to that? There was an interesting editorial that came out this week in Annals of Emergency, which pairs well with Catherine's, I think. And they talk about occupancy as being an important factor, but probably underestimates the real problem. And the reason for that is that about 80% of admissions from the emergency department are admitted to about 20% of the services. So if Mm. we're looking at occupancy in the entire hospital, and that is measured as a single point in time occupancy at midnight usually, It underestimates what I would call, or what they call in that uh, editorial, the bad hour utilization of the acute care services that are very, are so, the emergency department's so dependent upon. And Mm -hmm. I would hazard most of the places I've looked at run those services at 110 to 120% most of the time.
2: I'm just a bit lost from your point, David. So you're saying 80% of the patients are admitted to 20% of the beds?
4: No, 80% of the admissions that come from emergency department flow through 20% of the services. In other words, if you want to bang for your buck and put some money and resources and capacity into uh, where the main problem is, then that's an important sort of number and ratio to understand. So the main
2: problem would therefore be having more of those beds unoccupied to be admitted to.
4: Right, I mean that's where the whole uh issue of queuing theory comes in, right? Uh, it, it's it really is. That's the physics of flow. It's mathematic, right? If there are if there is no surge capacity, in other words, we run our system on average at 100% capacity, then of the time, we're going to be busier than that. And they will wait in the emergency
0: department. I'm going to just chime in here because I I think what David is pointing to is, I think the internal medicine services could as easily write an editorial saying that Mm they're in crisis too. (laughs) And that's what I've heard from our internal medicine colleagues who've been functioning at 120% capacity now for two years. And in that, that Occupancy affects the flow considerably of the emergency department because that is the admitting service that we rely on almost the most, and so the any measures that we can do to increase surge capacity to those services will, the downstream effect will improve the flow of what happens in the ED.
4: And I think that's super important to point out because Mm -hmm, this is mm -hmm. a whole of system problem, right? So internal medicine, if you look at their outflow into long-term care or continuing care or home care, transition type places... They aren't available either, right? But one of the fundamental problems, I think, is that we have one of the lowest number of hospital beds in the OECD, right? We are Mm -hmm. uh, second last out of
3: 38, I think.
4: That's right. So we can turn up efficiency probably in some places a little more than we have already. But at some point, it is a capacity issue. So let's
3: talk about some of those sort of Solutions that don't actually give us much bang for our buck. Um, what are some of the myths out there about the problem in the emergency department and how to fix it? What doesn't work, or what sort of is just rearranging deck chairs?
4: Well, I, I think I think that's it's an interesting question because it, in my mind, has evolved over the last twenty years. The, early on, uh, there were great studies to set, suggest that low acuity patients are not the problem in the emergency department. The variance uh, of one more low acuity patient, in terms of wait times, is in in seconds to minutes. But over time, and I think especially post-pandemic, there's a growing group of what we would call avoidable ED visits. And so I think we have to be careful not to confuse those with Low acuity emergency patients. So, an emergency patient I would define, and is defined in other internationally, as a patient with a problem that is unexpected or unscheduled and has some time dependency to it. So, a laceration, which may be a CTAS four or a five, is reasonable to come to the emergency department. It does not block. ED beds and does not block ambulance offloads. But there's a growing number of patients that are sent to eMERGE or come to the eMERGE because there is no other option for them that are continuing care issues. There are uh, the frail elderly that feels uh, a little... Different today. Workup of weight loss for two months. A lot of schedulable and predictable transfusions come to the emerge and need to be. You know, the emergency department has turned into this sort of outpatient clinic and it becomes if they just need a CT or an ultrasound and they're sent to the eMERGE. And so none of that is good for patients. Patients don't like waiting 6, 8, 10, 12 hours for that. And it really is a problem. So, So I think that back to your original question, Things that have focused on low acuity patients like big education, expensive sometimes education programs, putting a walk-in clinic across the street, even this transactional retail medicine virtual care stuff sometimes referred to as fast food medicine, where they're not integrated with a primary care home, there is no continuity of care. Those things don't solve the problem, A, and in the long run, probably make the problem worse.
2: We'll be back after a short break.
1: Are you looking for your next adventure where you can have a meaningful impact? Come explore British Columbia with the help of Health Match BC. We're a free health professional recruitment service funded by the government of British Columbia. We're currently recruiting rural physicians of all specialties on behalf of BC's publicly funded health employers. Visit us at healthmatchbc.org rural for more information. Want to go further at every stage of your medical career? Learn how MD Financial Management and Scotiabank Healthcare Plus help physicians go further together with insights and solutions focused on the financial health of physicians. Whether you've just been accepted to medical school or you're getting ready to retire, we will understand and anticipate your needs every step of the way. To learn more, visit md.ca slash go further.
3: So let's jump into the problem. What are the system level changes other than just you know swiping a credit card and building new hospitals, what can we do in the near to moderate term to start to alleviate some of the stresses that we're all facing day to day?
0: So what I outlined in the editorials that I, I think hospitals are really in a precarious place because they haven't been sent a lifeline at all over the last two years. And so they're really on their own to institute some hospital level changes that may be able to mitigate some of the challenges happening in the emergency department. And I think that starts with communication. And in emergency medicine, we think of one of our most valuable skills as being good communicators and crises. And I think this is time to, to really foster that and from a hospital administration standpoint is that we need to see what's happening in the emergency department as a hospital-wide problem and not just for the emergency department providers to sh- to shoulder. And so I think recognizing and stating that there's a problem, I think visible hospital leadership coming to the emergency department talking to emergency department providers about what they're experiencing on a day-to-day basis cannot be underestimated. I think these are really important things for hospital leaders to do. And then with the addressing the challenge of patients who are boarding in the emergency department, first recognizing that patients who are boarding have worse outcomes than those who are cared for on the services where they are slotted to go. So the intensive care unit, for instance. And so making concerted efforts to move patients to the intensive care unit or to the floor such that they can receive the specialist care, that they need is really important. And emphasizing that um, at a hospital level, I think at this point in time, is is of particular importance for the care of patients.
4: I'll just follow up with maybe a couple comments. Uh, You know, there was a great study that looked at high-performing hospitals, comparing them to medium and low-performing hospitals. And it wasn't the what of what everybody did. In fact, Most, all three categories did similar things, but there were four hows, how they did things that made a difference. One was executive leadership involvement, not just uh, lip service, but direct involvement. And I know that Catherine mentioned how important that is in her editorial. Two is performance accountability. Three is system wide whole of system solutions, and four is data driven decision making and iterative decision making. And so, those are the things that actually work. So, when you look at and when I'm that other editorial I was talking about, they make a big deal about talking about the fact that in today's uh, hospital systems, 100% of the services are squeezed between into 25 percent of the hours so if you look at the eight to five on on weekdays that's only 25 percent of the hours that a hospital is open and so that speaks to some of the issues around consultant availability uh, as well as the diagnostic imaging accountability and that sort of thing so there are ways and other hospitals have shown that they can do it and do it without burning out their consultants uh, in a way that is more patient-centered and does actually improve care across the board, including reducing mortality. Um, so those things have been done and can be utilized. We haven't done a lot of that in Canada. One of the ways that they've done it in the UK, let's say, and in Australia and New Zealand, is create either you might call them observation units, short-stay units, or assessment bays. So if a consultant can't make a decision within a certain amount of time and they need more time, they leave the emergency department so the next ambulance can be unloaded, and they go to an area that's staffed with uh, nurse practitioners, house staff, and consultants in order to make decisions. And that's been done at an entire system or country level. Ireland has uh, some really great examples of how that could work. So, I think all of those things are out there, but we just haven't had the accountability around some of our performance metrics, and that's a big issue.
3: Talk to me more about the accountability piece and how you can build that into a healthcare system or or ramp that up so that we have more accountability from everyone in the system who at any point could help alleviate the crisis that we're in now?
4: Well, uh, accountability is tricky because sometimes it gets interpreted as compliance. And compliance in an era where healthcare morale is down and the number of doctors and nurses that are available to to work becomes really tricky. So uh, I think that's where we have to come together across silos and across programs and work towards common goals such as the quintuple aim or what's sometimes referred to as value-based medicine and work back from there. We have to understand what what patients need and what patients want and design our system around that. There's a great JAMA article about health system redesigned talking about form following function. Let's decide and see what patients need and then organize and redesign our system around that rather than it's been the exact opposite. We've often designed our systems around what's good for providers. And so there hasn't been that level of accountability either.
3: At the end of the day, everyone's on the same side of the table in the hospital because this is 30 years of of funding neglect, right? It's because the government has not adequately funded health services. There's just too many sick people. And
2: I think that part of that is just, listen, if your plan, if we... If we're dialyzing people that weren't dialyzed 50 years ago, if we are keeping people alive by stenting them and bypassing 97 year olds, well, what do you expect? Like we are keeping people alive longer, which I don't think is a bad thing. But the bad side, the downside of that is that you have people who have complex medical problems who are going to keep coming back into the emergency department. And then on top of that, we have no social safety net for patients. Like in this country, there's zero social safety nets. Like there's not like, why are people on ALC? Because I get those patients because, well, we can't take them home. And, you know, I feel for the family because it is difficult to care for people, but for people who are like, well, I'm working two jobs. How am I going to take care of this 90 year old patient who can't move? And so there's no social safety nets for people to actually go home. So oftentimes, I think, honestly, people are fed up and they're just, this is an easier place for their parent or their loved one to be because they can't do it themselves.
4: I think that's an excellent point. And I was going to try and get to that when you suggested that the whole system's overcrowded and that, you know, you go from ED to inpatient to nursing home. But that's, it doesn't have to track like that, right? There's a lot of excellent work and literature out there about improving the care of the elderly and how important integrated home care and well-resourced home care, continuing care options are. Hospital at home options. There's a great article in today's CMAJ, I think, and recent work in in, in the area of COPD and recent work in congestive heart failure. Not everybody with that diagnosis needs to be admitted but they need to have early outpatient clinic follow-ups and they need to have a primary care home who can quarterback uh, care outside. They need same day, next day access to their primary care team, which should be multidisciplinary, of course, and regionally rostered. All of those things make a huge difference. They may seem small and you may say, that's not going to solve the boarding problem, but altogether, we may have. I'm not sure this is a funding issue, Blair, right? If funding was allocated a little more appropriately to system-based solutions like that, we, would, uh, we wouldn't be feeling that stress and then starting to have tension between and among various services and programs.
3: But David, nothing you said seems any different than I, when I started being a paramedic in 2005. Of we need more home care, people shouldn't be in hospitals. They shouldn't be in nursing homes. They should be in the community. We need p- families to take care of people. We need to have better palliative care so that people aren't getting calfed when they're 97. All these ideas seem to have been around for the 20 years that I've been playing in the healthcare care field. Uh, what is the next move? Because no one has seemed capable of spearheading that in a way that has helped the system. Here we are in the worst crisis we've ever been in, it seems. What is the systemic change that is actually feasible to happen in the next year or so, like something somewhat near term that can lead to a sustained safety pop-up valve so that people can start to enjoy being an emergency medicine practitioner again? Sorry.
4: <laughs>
3: it, it seems like we just cycle around the same idea. Like we all have this speak of solutions, but no one's been able to implement them.
4: Well, I mean, it comes back to the very first question you asked. Why the tipping point and why is it crises now? And I think it it's this sense that the answers are out there. They have been shown to work in other jurisdictions. They've been shown to work in some smaller regions in Canada. But there hasn't been the will to scale and spread them. One of the things that I've seen called for a lot by some commentators, Andre Picard and others, is that we need to actually separate healthcare system decision-making from the short political cycle that sometimes drives government decisions, and certainly significant resource allegations. And uh, that's easier said than done, perhaps. But I think if we truly commit to this thing called the learning health system and what that means, and we bring in and scale up the good ideas, try them out, evaluate them, get rid of the ones that don't work, scale the ones that do, we can get there. And it might be slowly and surely, but there will be a tipping point.
0: I'm going to jump in there. I completely agree. The political decision-making that goes into healthcare funding is not necessarily what's in the best interest of patients. And we see that in these very short-term, quickly rolled out programs that are advertised to the public as fixing the healthcare crisis. And these short-term solutions are expensive. They are rarely evaluated. And they, for those of us working on the ground, seem to do absolutely nothing. And so I'll I'll give you a, a, a few examples where patients describe, oh, I thought things were going to be better in the emergency department because pharmacists are now allowed to prescribe medications for pink eye or urinary tract infections, or a list of other low acuity conditions, that has not measurably changed who or how we see patients in the emergency department. And the same is true, and this was rolled out years ago to end hallway medicine, was the availability of nurse-operated telephone lines that patients could call. And if anything, patients are told, at a higher rate to go to the emergency department than if they just made the decision on their own. And so I can't tell you how often patients come in the middle of the night and say, I wouldn't have come, but a telephone operator that I spoke to said I had to come in. And I say, I think everything's okay. And then they're discharged home. And so I I think the evaluation piece and thinking about what is going to have an impact on patient care and at a provincial level is really important.
3: I want to bounce off of what you both said and bring it to a wrap here with a final question. David, as co-chair of the Task Force on the Future of Emergency Care, what type of response have you gotten in your engagement with governments across the country in terms of appreciating the severity of the problem and bringing forward some of the solutions that we've talked about?
4: Well, I would say pretty good. In fact, Perhaps as we speak, uh, members of our group are meeting with the Council of Deputy Ministers of Health somewhere in Toronto to talk about some of the issues. There's a recognition. I mean, one of the things that drives political decision making is the media and what's in the media these days are ED closures and ED crowding both of which are not really E.D. problems. They are whole of system problems manifesting there. And that has been one of the main messages of Uh, our task force. But I think for the most part, it does feel just a little bit different this time that finally we're getting through with some of those messages and certainly this sense that post-pandemic something has to be done. And again, some media voices like Andre Picard and others that suggest we can't just nibble around the edges anymore. We need structural change. That's what we're suggesting in this uh, task force report. Thank you
3: so much for joining us. That was a a great conversation. Thanks so much, Blair. Thanks,
0: Majola, for having us.
4: Thanks. That was great.
3: David Petrie is an emergency physician in Halifax and co-chair of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians Task Force on the Future of Emergency Care. And Catherine Varner is a deputy editor of the CMAJ, an emergency physician in Toronto, and the author of the editorial in CMAJ titled, Emergency Departments Are in Crisis Now and for the Foreseeable Future.
2: So, Blair, leaving this conversation with your colleagues, what are your initial thoughts of of what possible solutions there can be, uh, or maybe where we need to refocus our energy when we're talking about
3: the crisis in the emergency departments? Well, I think what strikes me is that you really have to separate all this anger and this emotional turmoil that you go through on an emergency medicine shift from your efforts to find solutions. Because at at the end of the day, the solutions are obviously not, not easy to actually get any yield from. So I do think that, you know, most people in the emergency department have been trying for a long, long time to fix this. Most people in the hospital seem to now have a better understanding that the root cause isn't something the emergency department can fix, that this has to be at a whole hospital level.
2: But I also think that part of it is that, you know, as people are living longer, we don't have social safety nets that used to be there for people. And part of that is that, and this is the... Kumbaya part of me is that, you know, we live in a capitalist society that really prioritizes your ability to make money over anything else. And so, you know, when the way we look at our elderly uh, population, our geriatric population, is that we don't necessarily invest in proper social safety net that could help them, right? Because that's part of the issue of why people are staying longer in hospital is they don't have a social safety net. They have nowhere to go, and they're not being able to be taken care of at home.
3: Well, they always have the emergency department to go to because we are traditionally the social safety net. But now, literally, the other day in my emergency department... There were more patients admitted to hospital in the ER than we had ER beds. (laughs) We had people in wheelchairs who had already been admitted. They'd been seen by the consultant. So when we lose that social safety net, yeah, you're right. That's a bigger conversation that I
2: think is beyond us as physicians, besides being advocates for health equity, is that, you know, it's great to build a new tower. It's great to get a new robot. But really and truly, maybe the best way to spend our dollars is to provide services like a home care and being able to have that so patients can vacate the hospital bed, not necessarily go to nursing home, but to be be able to be taken care of at home. So I am a bit advocate for things. I, I do think we have to view it as bigger than just what's happening in the hospital. And, and you know, David mentioned some great, like, things that were happening in Ireland in terms of the assessment lounge. I think having, like, you know, for specialties, because the emergency doctor talks about us all never coming downstairs, but having, you know, units where the next day there's a clinic that you can send the patient to, because, you know, you might be like, I'm not 100% comfortable with this patient, but you know what? If they can be seen in five hours or six hours the next day, I'm comfortable with that. But having those type of mechanisms actually is helpful. And people will appreciate it. that. You know what? I don't have to wait here any longer. Someone will see me tomorrow morning. Great. That's wonderful.
3: Totally. And there's great evidence for both stroke care, for TIAs, for example, and for low-risk chest pain that being seen within 24, 48, 72 hours is perfectly fine. You don't need to be admitted to hospital. Maybe that type of next-day clinic model could be expanded with other other services as well. That's it for this episode of the CMAJ Podcast. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating wherever you download your audio, and share it with your networks, leave a comment, and help us get the word out. The CMAJ Podcast is produced for CMAJ by PodCraft Productions. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Blair Bigham.
2: I'm Mujala Mali. Until next time, be well.